Okay. All right. Last chapters of Arlington. Yeah. End of an era here. Hmm. The Arlington era. Da, da, da. Let's actually get notes. Not one of Sarah's thesis chapters. <laughs> Fascinating though they are. Doing something completely different here. Hmm. The following discussions are a further look into director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Wind Door with your friends Greg and Toby. This is the penultimate episode of Arlington, wherein we will discuss the final three chapters, 23 to 25, which we have chosen to call for the purpose of our own theme, Denouement. It begins with the final, well, the first and technically final confrontation between Seth and Thomas, leads into the events immediately afterwards, which, of course, begins to hint at what is to come in the very next book that we are going to cover, Steamheart, as well as the final aftermath of everything that has occurred, encapsulating the story of Arlington, as in, to a great extent, the family of Arlington, as well, of course, as the author of the Cartographer's Handbook, Thomas. Mm. There's nothing left to hold back at this point because if you are following along with us properly, you will have read everything that there is at this point of Arlington. Obviously, this entire book sets up a lot of what is to come later on. And so we have to be careful about not revealing too much of what Toby and I already know at this point uh, in terms of how certain plot points end up both in Steamheart, but also in the later books of Phase 2. It is a difficult challenge for we, the talkative secret keepers. <laughs> yeah, and it might be annoying for people... Well, okay, there are going to be a lot of fans of Through the Windor that have already gone as far as we have, and hmm. so therefore know the things that we keep teasing at along the way, and have been doing so ever since we began with Let Them Go. But for people that might never have, this is their first experience with New Century, they would just be like, just stop being coy, coy. about it. Just get on with what You're not you as coy as you think we, you are. I can guess. <laughs> for those who are in the know, hey, hey, yeah, you guys know. You guys know. <laughs> well, the first chapter we cover is essentially the climax of the novel. You can tell almost from the beginning that this confrontation between Seth and Thomas is what everything has built towards. And yet at the same time, it's an atypical climax 
because this is the first and only time in the story, indeed, the only time ever, that protagonist and antagonist meet. And as I was writing out the outline for today's show, I was thinking to myself how it's strange to even call Seth the antagonist at all, since he hasn't been in most of the book. Thematically, he is the antagonist, since he is clearly driving the action that has been present since the handbook. He is responsible for the inciting incident, and he is at the very least a representation of the force that has brought the United States, but also, as we know from other books, the entire globe low thanks to the threat of the Wendigo. Now that this sickness, this plague, this enemy force has an actual face to it in the form of Seth, this would ostensibly be the opponent that Thomas is all about, has written his handbook, and is trying to marshal the peoples of the United States, at least, to face since he can't be of concern with other places in the world that he has no control over, but also this is where his family is located. These are where the people he cares about are located. And this is the place that he has risen to some prominence in order to affect. And now this representation in all of that, this predator in the form of Seth, faces him, asks him questions, not just of what his plans are, but questions that, in trope talk, pierce his armor and force him to come to terms with everywhere he has been right up until this moment. And you had some very pithy mm. things to follow on from that, so please go too. Mm. That's very accurate to say that he pierces his armor because the whole point of this exchange really is Seth is almost there to say, I am going to be his let's role play. I'm going to be the part of you that asks you these questions. And this time you don't get to turn away from the real answer to these questions, because like the lying cat from Saga, I will be able to say Lying. <laughs> Great uh, literary reference there. Uh, yeah. I, fortunately, yeah. it may be something that people are familiar with since Lying Cat has reached a little bit of mimetic status, even if you've mm. never read the saga um, graphic novel. But yeah. I recall that Alex and Sharon did do a show on saga some years ago, so longtime School of Movies fans may already have read it. I'll generally say that Saga is a worthwhile read, and that it can do things differently than a lot of other contemporary stories. I can't say how much it influenced New Century, as that's not a topic that comes up often. But I'll also add that if you go too far down that rabbit hole, you might not enjoy certain plot twists, as Brian K. Vaughan feels very strongly about no one in the story having plot armor. He takes that idea farther than Alex ever has, and while it's not as bad as Game of Thrones in that regard, the comic does go to dark places. But I digress. Seth is here to evaluate Arlington. And when I use that word, I mean it in multiple senses. 
he's evaluating him as a threat, given the fact that they are essentially, as you uh, touched on, are the leaders of two opposing factions. And Seth directly says he is undecided on whether to kill him. But he's also evaluating the sum total of Thomas's work throughout this novel. Seth as a character feels well positioned to be the big bad of a story. He has all the intimidating and disarming qualities that we discussed on his introduction that make him a frightening and insurmountable presence. But it's not really his capacity to inflict physical harm that is the true test of this denouement, is it? It's his words, his questions, as you say, those are the things that pierce Thomas's armour, not any physical attacks that Seth could actually inflict on him. Mm. Thomas faces a figure who disarms his ability to lie and demands the uncomfortable inner truth from him. And the question he asks is the only real question that determines whether or not a person can keep moving. Is what you're striving for an impossible task? Say what you will about Seth being absent from much of this book, but that question has certainly been lingering in the shadows throughout our entire time in Washington. It's been there, whether it's been reflected on or explicitly stated. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially, this is like Thomas's own Babadook. On the surface, he's saying... I am confronting this. I am doing like everything that people say. Like I'm able to keep moving and keep doing stuff about it. But much like in the film The Babadook, when the main character says that like I am moving on, I never talk about this, and people looking in go, "That's not really how you actually deal with these internal shadows that are plaguing at you and tearing you up from the inside." The question of can the human race survive itself and do they even deserve all that Thomas has given to preserve it? Seth and his Wendigos are only there to put it all into perspective. That makes this the only way that Arlington, the book, could end with the honest testimony of one of humanity's last keepers. Listening back to this conversation... It's occurred to me that we have overlooked something in all of our discussions thus far. We've been so focused on New Century telling its own story and doing something different that I forgot in part where all of this began. This is essentially Alex's response to all the zombie outbreak stories out there. It's as much inspired by Max Brooks' World War Z as it is, in a way, meant to be a commentary on all those other pieces of media out there that want to explore it, like The Walking Dead or all those Romero movies. And I've never really considered the larger story from that perspective, because it also has so much more than that under the hood, especially as we've been doing all this exploration of genre and theme. I pondered taking a moment to try and answer this now, but I think I'm going to actually leave this question for our final episode so that I can get Toby's feedback on this idea. I went on to ask several questions about how to consider Seth in light of this final confrontation. I wanted to know what your thoughts were because I was trying to figure out my own. Mm. But some of those words that you 
came up with in response to my initial outline there, there is the greater thing to consider, which is not Seth as a person, but Seth as a concept, Seth as the shadow of Thomas himself. Mm. And those final words that eventually culminate their discussion, where Seth is all like, You believe these words you say. I have made you a desperate man. That was not your doing. It was always them. Mm. And when he says them, he means the intractability of the American people in particular. Because Mm. if America had not been so divided against itself, something which the Civil War was already the representation of, Mm -hmm. then maybe the coming of the Wendigo wouldn't have inflicted as much damage as it did. And now, even after everything that Thomas has tried to bring about with President Grant and the NIA and the cartographers and everything like that, the very fact of this is what Seth came to with his forces, with them already fighting, with with humanity already fighting each other. Mm. The Wendigo being present did make things worse. More people Mm. died as a result. Seth's forces grew more powerful. But the fighting would have been there already. So therefore, it's in some ways the addition of it just sort of adds insult to injury. Alternatively, replace the Wendigo with climate change or the coronavirus, and we can see that these real issues are made worse by our division, because we can't see eye to eye on how to respond in a crisis. Would climate change have hit us this hard if it had not been made into a partisan issue by billionaires and politicians, and therefore made it so little to no progress was made addressing the issue. Seth even says to Thomas, and this is a point he makes, which is like he came to talk and the situation as it was when he arrived just makes what he wants to say so much more succinct. That if he came and there was a united front to oppose him and his family, then Seth would have most likely hit a wall or mm-hmm. at the very least suffered great amount more casualties to the Wendigos than mm-hmm. he has in fact done. He was not planning to make this attack because he knew that this would be the perfect opportunity. He just came here, saw what the situation was, and his response was essentially, well, of course they are. Mm-hmm he uses that he uses that and just points to thomas and he says like i don't have to say a single thing i am just bringing you here to a vantage point so that you can get perspective and that is meant in every sense of it not just philosophical perspective but a literal like high vantage point to see the litany of horrendous acts that Seth details and it's pointing out one of them at a point where it's like there's no Wendigo involved there. These are men that are doing harm to somebody because mm-hmm. they can, because their own 
dark, violent impulses Mm -hmm. are unchecked by any other forces Mm -hmm. and they feel the need to exercise power for whatever reason and Mm -hmm. are doing so. Seth is pointing out something that is happening regardless of anything that he did and asking, are these the people you actually want to save? Yeah, it's one of those things that some people consider a truism of effective villains, which is the idea that you want your villain to have a point, mm-hmm. like the idea that you will get to the end and they're not just someone who is like, I want to destroy the atmosphere so that I can get all the money. And it's like, that has so many problems. <laughs> you, what? And I'm not sure I necessarily agree that every great villain needs to actually have some sort of point to them. Like the idea that, you know, this discourse has happened so much of the Thanos was right stuff. Mm. And it's like, well, no, the guy is completely mad. And also he goes back on his own philosophy. Like, he yo-yos between things so much and it's essentially this guy just likes to sound magnanimous and things mm-hmm. like that i still think that makes him a really strong villain in the story that he is featured in but in this particular instance what seth is there to say is that me being here has made this a worse day mm-hmm. but this was already a travesty before I arrived, because this all started with the farce of a outcome that happened with the results of that trial. Seth is, is almost there to say, like, look, even if you scaled this day back several steps, you would have to scale it back a lot. This broth is poison, mm. and you can't undo that. Oh, I got. I don't, I don't want to go too far down the comparing it to modern America and discussion on the, mm. the repeating words about you can't reform the cops because mm. there is no foundation to build on that is not already toxic at this point. But mm. that's definitely what comes to mind. Just uh, hearing oh, yeah. elucidate the situation <laughs> in the book and everything like that. Obviously, I I don't think we necessarily know how much Seth knows about the events that actually led everybody to this place. But the significance Mm. is is that they're already fighting. And Mm. the fighting had been going on for a good while, or even just the brewing Mm. resentment, as Mm. we saw from Mm. Raven detailing the events leading Mm. up to the policemen coming out of the the trial, the the erupting violence, and... Mm. Raven is just continuing to type the details. So, you know, it's like so much is happening even as Raven mm. is trying to get it down. And then on top of that, the Wendigo appear. So you just got to imagine Seth watching all of this play out and go, oh, God, these fucking idiots. Well, mm. I did come here for a point. So, okay, um, family, why don't you go and uh, have a meal? Uh, I got to mm. go find our, we we got to stir things up enough to the point where Thomas shows up so I can yeah. finally have a meeting with the man himself. Yeah, it's essentially like it's not just he was there to kick the hornet's nest, but he found that like they were already like the hornets were already stinging each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What and a metaphor. He, he just decided 
all right, well, I'm just going to roll this down the hill a little bit. And it got a bit, a few more cracks as a result. And then, like, one of the Hornets comes out to be like, okay, I'm going to try and, like, get this back. It's like, oh, okay, you, let me just pluck you by the wings there. Okay, good. All right, take a look at this. Isn't this fucked? <laughs> no, 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 forget about me. Just, just look at how fucked you already are. Yeah, and... <laughs> To sort of get back to your point about, like, we don't know if Seth knows the specifics of why this fighting is happening. It really doesn't matter if mm. Seth knows. We know. Mm. Like, we, it, it's the idea that Seth, just this person who is looking at this from the most, like, outside perspective, is able to say, this, just from where I'm standing, is fucked. And then you go to someone on the inside, it's like, yeah, and you don't even know the whole story. So you're saying it's almost like a meta commentary, like Seth is speaking to the audience without Seth necessarily even needing to be aware of the audience. Yeah, it's it's this idea of like this finale moment here is essentially just like Seth deciding to take Thomas to the closest thing you can get to the literal in-text position to be an omniscient narrator and is inviting him to like, okay, narrate this, describe this, and tell me what the feelings are that come from this. It's a great place for this uh, book. Like, and I don't mean great as in like, oh, this is a great time. I mean, like, <laughs> this is the perfect okay. place for this book to go. Yeah, an, an appropriate dramatic mm. climax, if not ending, because it has, mm. as, as is very evident at this point, this story has a little bit ways to go before it can finally conclude. Uh-huh. Um, but before we get into that, let's move on to some of the questions that I asked of you and wanted to hear some of your thoughts. I basically mm. wrote this when I was trying to figure out the answers to myself, and I ended up having a side conversation with Maureen to get sort of her feedback on this, which has always been it's a little bit complicated talking with Maureen about New Century to begin with, because... She's had, like most of the cast members, many more conversations with Alex about this and has information, some of which she can reveal, kind of, because we've already come as far as we have, so many more things have been revealed. She also has her own opinions on all of this, particularly mm. in regards to how her character ends up interacting with some of these other characters down mm. the line. Mm -hmm. Um but before I start getting into some of the discussions that I had with her, let's move on to your thoughts on, at the very least, the first set of questions, which is, what makes Thomas special to Seth? Why does he show any special consideration? Is it because he sympathizes with Thomas's story of escaping slavery? Seth only just read the second handbook, as in he, he says... I read this the day before arriving. And so there's the implication because the attack on Vice President Hayes happened several days before at this point. He might have planned on doing this long before he read of Thomas's story. The first handbook would have had, uh, you know, I'm Thomas Arlington. I'm the head of the cartographers. This is our plan for everything like that. And so therefore being like, oh, okay, so you're the figurehead, or at least one of the major figureheads of what's going on here. So if I want to ensure 
the safety, or even if I just want to fuck with you because I can, um, I'm going to go for Thomas Arlington here. But now the new handbook would have come out several days before the attack on Hayes. He very well might have gotten a copy of the second handbook from Annie or possibly another cartographer, which is why he's only just read the new version, which includes this Thomas's story and everything like that. And now it seems as a result of reading Thomas's story, his idea for how this interaction would go has changed. It's not as simple of, I'm going to have Braoth eat you. I'm, I'm interested in talking more about this instead of just rubbing everything in your face. So this is a this is a very uh, worthwhile question. I want to give a serious answer, but just as you were talking, I had this realization <laughs> that essentially what this climax of this book is is Braoth goes up to an author of a book and says, "I read your book and I have opinions." <laughs> Seth, but yeah. yeah, I mean they're both they're both. Um... They're both big hairy lions, just uh, different kinds. One's bipedal and one is quadrupedal. So yeah. <laughs> oh, oh fuck. <laughs> that just like I was keeping that laugh in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about that because I was like, "What are you? What? What? Uh, what are you hiding?" I felt so bad. I like it's one of those moments where I'm like, "Oh my god, this is like a really dumb thing that I'm finding funny." But like Greg is saying good stuff. I don't want to stop this, but like I will let this out, and it will be dumb. And uh, anyway, to get back to your actual question, which is, what makes Thomas special to Seth? Possibly because the second handbook revealed that Thomas has been slighted by the institutions of America and yet has managed to rise to a high enough position within it in order to try and preserve the remaining human institutions that exist within these lands. Seth wants to ask the man who has taken it upon himself to act as the disciplining father to the unruly and destructive children of America if this ongoing struggle is worth it. Knowing the trauma that Thomas experienced at the hands of some of these Americans just intensifies Thomas's status as a curious case in Seth's eyes. The handbook most likely indicated to Seth that Thomas was not just a dictator or an unthinking general crusading against the Wendigo. The handbook is filled with examples time and time again of Thomas's critical thinking, suggesting that he might at the very least be open to discussion and introspective conversation. But in addition to that, the handbook includes enough material to make it clear that Thomas has reservations about the path that America has been on and stresses the imperative to drastically course correct to ensure that where they go as a civilization can not just survive, but be better. Mm. If such a person is in a high enough position to campaign for this change to come into being, perhaps there is merit in talking with him to see if terms can be established and an honest conversation held. And I think that all of that together is what interests Seth, that there is someone who exists who not only has these ideas and is sharing them with people rather than saying, just sort of leaning into all of the human tendencies and habits that Seth is so critical of, that in addition to that, he knows that this person has 
more than enough reason to doubt humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think that he essentially wants to find out how does Thomas reconcile that. Mm. In the same way that we saw that Seth has that feline curiosity <laughs> with, with when we saw him do that experiment with the couple mm. a few chapters earlier, it doesn't mean that, like, when Seth is curious, that doesn't mean that he's automatically going to a spot where it's like, because I'm curious about you, I'm going to let you live. It's just a case of, I really may kill you. I genuinely don't know, don't care much either way. But before I do, I'm going to draw, whether it's amusement or just, not necessarily amusement, but, like, I need to satiate not just my hunger, but my curiosity. And I'm not suggesting Seth eats them. I'm just saying that, like, there is a drive. We've already talked a little bit about how his predatory nature comes through in his actions and his words. Mm. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned feline curiosity, because that uh, that is definitely a thought that I had in my own head when I was listening to you talk a moment ago. This ties in a little bit with the second question, but I'm going to start us Mm -hmm. off on this path a little bit now before I move on to that question. The thing about what Seth wants, and the reason why I was asking these questions to begin with, is that Seth doesn't quite encapsulate the kind of opposition that I expect from previous media in which two people are set against one another. There are elements of, say, Magneto versus Xavier in this confrontation, and yet it's not quite the same because... Mm, There um, is no prior relationship there. there, There's no prior relationship whether this is an ongoing conversation about being on two different sides of an issue and everything like that. So it's different on that level. But it's also different on the level of Seth isn't just saying that he wants his people, the Wendigo, his family, to be left alone, much as saying, like, you know, the Native American nations would want to be there to be detente between themselves and the United States, wanting to be sovereign nations in and of themselves without having ongoing violence between the two of them. Because... In some ways, when we get to what Seth's demand of Thomas is, it'd be like, I don't want just this territory. The implication is, I don't. so I don't want your armies coming in and trying to cleanse them of Wendigo. But the idea of, like, does that mean that Seth is going to potentially farm the humans remaining in those territories? Not simply to be more Wendigo, but to be like, a food source mm. to the Wendigo because we know that the Wendigo can and do eat normal animals, but is that going to be enough to sustain them? Mm. And therefore, the humans in the states that Seth wants would be the equivalent of cattle to Seth and the Wendigo to feed on, so to speak. This is where. Maureen's insight into some of this sort of brought me around in terms of he's not simply the leader of a nation, so to speak, like Chief Masoit would have been of the Wampanoag or any of the other great men of the various 
Iroquois or Cherokee or Lakota nations and everything like that. He's setting himself up a little bit as being like as akin to a god. Mm. He has the Wendigo, which obey his words or his impulses, however it is that he's able to communicate with them. And it's not necessarily like they are in a position to fight back. Mm. They do what he says and, when he wants them to do something, of it, and the rest, he will just be like, I give you leave to go and fill mm. your bellies and fulfill whatever impulses you have, provided you don't cross me. Will That's very true. The idea is of a god is not necessarily that like a king is of the people that they govern, but a god is part and parcel and yet separate to mm-hmm. the people that it would be a god to, that Seth will govern their course and their fate and their nature, but he is not a Wendigo himself. He is affiliated, but not necessarily of them, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. And on top of that, if we if we presume that Seth is setting himself not just above humanity as being better than them, but also the god of his own childlike race, so to speak, Mm. then possibly what Seth sees in Thomas, particularly in light of that last interaction between the two of them where, where the narrator expresses to us that Seth actually develops an expression of like pity or sympathy for Thomas after Thomas seemingly agrees to his demand. And he says that final line about needing to be the best of men Mm. and everything like that. The only thing that Seth was actually interested in was the potential opponent, a a, a mental equal in a Mm. way that the Wendigo are not. And Mm. perhaps even most of humanity is not because he sees them as being, a savage species that pretends to be better than animals and yet are not. Oh, thank God. Social activity. (laughs) Everyone else I hang out with just snarls. (laughs) Great. So can you teach me this, uh, this, uh, this chess thing you have? I, uh, I want something to stimulate my brain uh, that isn't just, you know, like hunting and pouncing on humans. Cause that's, that's easy. There's no challenge. I mean, to be fair and in canon, like I don't think that Seth necessarily would have an interest in these very sort of human diversions because he maintains that there is in their existence there is nothing like more than just hunt to ex- be part of that very primal existence. But you know, it's also funny that like to imagine this person with a very like loquacious uh mm. demeanor to them to also be like just relishing any chance to actually talk with someone who can keep up mm-hmm. and also just along the lines of like if you're a god then you need quote unquote a devil so to mm. speak not quite in the same like we don't necessarily know what culture seth comes from he could be a changed human that actually became some sort of greater Wendigo. Like, Mm. there is so much we don't know about. Does he come from the same place as the Wendigo? And 
he is just a weird does, evolved form of the Wendigo? Or is does he Seth occupy else? a similar role to the Paradise Lost version of Lucifer? Mm, like, yeah, exactly. You know, there's, there's multiple directions and paths that Seth could go on. Exactly. But the point is, is that things are defined by the things they are sympathetic to and the things they are in opposition against. So this is a moment of like self-actualization for mm -hmm. Seth by essentially going to the proponent of what he is opposed to and saying, this is, these are our terms. Mm -hmm. And it's not that he needs vindication from mm -hmm. Thomas. So he definitely doesn't. It's more that you are spreading this information about what we are and i am here to tell you that you know nothing mm -hmm. this is what we are and you will learn to live with this or you will or like, you won't yeah or exactly. you won't exactly <laughs> it's someone that he can give the uh the, what was referred to on tv tropes as this is the reason why you suck speech <laughs> Thomas, Thomas, you suck so bad. <laughs> You're a complete knee biter. <laughs> but I don't suck, you suck. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I'm not writing the scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Drawing upon the wrong influences. I don't think we want Thomas and Seth to be like Beavis and Butthead. Uh... <laughs> With one hand, we deliver insightful commentary on a emotionally rich and textured denouement to a very politically charged book. And with the other hand, we just say silly shit that makes us laugh. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that stuff I have no there. complaints about it. <laughs> that stuff is there in School of Movies as well, you know, because so, it, it, it devolves. We learned it from watching you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. So, taking all of that we just said into consideration, let's move on to the second set of mm -hmm. uh, questions that I had, which is, if Seth is so sure that the RSA would lose a conflict between humans and Wendigo, and let's face it, this entire scene where they're showing the, the devolution of humanity attacking each other, kind of, you know, like, doesn't help an, a, a counter-argument against that. Mm -hmm. But my natural thought was, why does Seth make actually make the offer at all? Why bother yeah. assassinating people? Why does he want territory for a form of life he insists is pure and animalistic? Why, does board, why would borders even matter to one as such as him? Wendigo's without borders. <laughs> The Wendigo would not compromise a nation the same as the Native American nations that he mentions in regards to, you know, like they want their own territory to live on and hunt on and everything like that. But I mean, it's like if they're animals, then ideally any territory and any place they would go, they would in could in theory hunt and live and exist but he's saying, no, 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 I, I want these states in particular. But in the meantime, it's not like the Wendigo as they exist right now are more than animals, that they would build their own 
even nomadic villages or anything mm. like that, or build a civilization, build mm. edifices in the same way or anything like that. On the other hand, there is that scene from mm. way back in Secret Rooms where there is the implication that the Wendigo can, in fact, breed. And okay, maybe that's not much in and of itself. Most life forms breed. But previously, it was assumed it only happened through infection and not, say, coitus. James was suggesting that the positioning of the bodies alluded to the idea that the Wendigo had an empathy for each other and their young, suggesting some kind of social group. They were more than just monsters and therefore should potentially be allowed some amount of empathy as well, the same as we have for other animals with complex social groups like wolves, dolphins, and primates. So maybe Seth is aware of this. We don't know. Like, he has expressed a curiosity to relationships that might result from humans that were in a relationship to mm. Wendigo that might continue to have empathetic ties. But does he actually care about any of that? How much does he know? We don't, we're not even completely sure. So I wondered to myself... Why is it that it would even matter to him to set up borders or to try and feel like he needs to prove anything to anyone at all? Why wouldn't he just like, yeah, no, I'm going to continue to help my Wendigo thrive in the background. Mm -hmm. You'll never even meet me at all. Be like, oh, you're, you're, you're mustering an army. Great. Well, uh, I'm going to figure out how to do superior tactics and eat your army and continue to be better than all of you, particularly when I can just wade into a battle and apparently shrug off gunshots and everything like that and just kill all of you like mm. friggin' Sauron at the beginning of that, you know, that, that past battle of, uh, what's it called? Of, of, uh, the last Other alliance ship? of orcs and uh, men yeah. at the beginning of Orcs and men? <laughs> Last alliance of elves and men. Sorry, I want to see that alternative light <laughs> version of it. Yeah, no, but it's like you know he's coming to battle with his big ass mace and he's like dashing people left and right. Like he's and, playing a fucking dynasty warriors. Yeah, exactly. And in the meantime, it seems like he's absolutely going to kill the human king. But then, oops, he cuts off the ring hand. And that's apparently his his glowing weak spot. And have to kill. But as far as we know, Seth doesn't have a weak spot. Like he nah, takes damage, and then I, like Wolverine, he manifestly just, not. He has yeah, uh, yeah. taken like a knife to the face and just kind of pulled that out. Like he yeah. got a thought. Like this is the lion getting a thorn in its paw, and then just going pluck. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, so, like, why is Seth playing a game of Civilization rather than a game of StarCraft where he could just Zerg rush these guys into oblivion? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that the tension of the scene rests on the premise that Seth is undecided. He could kill Thomas and make no offer at all, or he could let, let the path that Thomas is on play out, albeit with some strict conditions, out of curiosity or hope or some other indiscernible quality that we are trying to pass at this early stage in the series with Seth's presence in it. It could be said that Seth is 
sure about his position of strength and believes that if humanity disappoint him after he has given them this one last chance to get their shit together, he could just as easily muster his forces and put a definitive end to it. In which case, the territories might be all that he knows he needs for him and the Wendigos. If he is truly beyond the same faults he criticizes in men, then is it feasible that like greedily demanding all lands that are far more than he actually needs is just simply beneath him in his mind? Or is this all a massive power play and an elaborate bluff? Mm. Yes, he has shown how vulnerable and mortal humanity's leaders are while conversely demonstrating his own seeming invulnerability. But how much can that be pushed? Are the Wendigo as unsurmountable as they appear to be in his words? Could this all have been a way to strike fear into them quickly, decisively, and establish boundaries between him and a discordant population of mankind that, if rallied against him, could be a threat, but if left to their own devices, may just die out or end up killing each other without his intervention. One point of the scene appears to be that we just don't know, hence why we hear that Thomas and a collection of people debriefed afterwards to go over everything that was said and figure out as much meaning as they can pass from the encounter. All we know is that this conversation exists on a razor's edge, with the capacity to topple over on either side at any instant. And yet, step by step, we're able to reach a point where an uneasy, not necessarily alliance is made, as I say in my notes, but more of a... Agreement. Agreement. A gentle's agreement. Like, I'll go to this map, you don't get me, or like, you know, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. And the decisive terms are established and left by Seth. Mm-hmm. In fact, like Thomas trying to have some sort of communication open would be a means for the terms to change. Like, oh, mm-hmm. how do I get in touch with you if things change? And <laughs> Seth says, like, whether it's just dramatic, like foreshadowing, like beyond what Seth could possibly know of the fact that. Thomas and him won't meet again, or just Seth definitively saying, no, we're not meeting again. You know, you either follow what I say and we keep ourselves to ourselves, or you die. This Mm. is it. This is not an ongoing email thread. I send this out (laughs) once, you get the memo, you do it. Mm. (sighs) It's a complicated setup, Mm. because as we've established a little bit here, Seth is as much an individual as he is a thematic representation and as as much as the issue between what's going on here is that it could be anything Mm -hmm. that is killing off the humanity. It just so happens that in this particular case, it's an infection that turns humans into beasts, particularly dangerous beasts. And humanity isn't simply attempting to fight it and losing. It's that they can't even come to an agreement on how to fight it, the best way to fight it. Mm. Um, And they're as interested in fighting each other as an outside force. One of the significant things about 
humanity as a species, never mind recorded history, is that nationalism can be used in order for those in power to direct aggression and oh, we're, we're low on resources, so we're going to fight these people over there and take their resources so that we can continue to exist. This is what allows powerful people in order to maintain their power by saying everything will be better if we just fight those people over there. And they can use that to their advantage. But something I've come across, the more and more I've learned about human history, is that a lot of the time people can't even necessarily manage to direct aggression against another nation or against another people. They're just as happy to fight each other. In particular, when I was looking at the uh, the history of the Crusades, and there was some revelation about like, yeah, the church would be like, okay, we're going to go to the Holy Lands and retake them for God, Deus Vult and everything like that. But some of the nobility that like raised up armies in order to go do what the church said, be like, you know, we don't actually have to fight Muslims over here. We can fight Jews in our own territory and take their stuff. Like these are ostensibly people from the nations that they belong to, whether it's Frenchmen or Englishmen or Italians or whatever. I guess the Italians didn't actually exist at that point because that was Rome and that was, uh, you know, a different but my point is is that these nations they, uh, they raise up their armies because it was nobles that had armies back then and be like okay yeah we're going to go fight the people that believe in a different god from us but they're all the way over there why don't we just pillage these people over here nobody cares about them anyway right right mm. oh we've killed yeah. them. Oh. it doesn't matter now so yeah. all right it's a bummer okay let's divvy up their stuff like <laughs> because you know we need things and yeah. other people have things and they clearly don't need it because the people who need it are us and they're they not us. So logically they don't need it. Mm -hmm. I mean, like everyone's on the same page, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, wait, you're dead. Okay. Well, I've taken you to stuff now. For those of you that are curious. Yes. I learned about all this from the extra history episodes on the crusades which are unfortunately problematic to listen to now. Dan Floyd did an amazing job of voicing some funny scripts while he was over there, but given what I've learned about James Portnow since, I really don't want to give that man any more traffic. And, and, and so I guess I'm just looking at all of this and thinking to myself, these things are cyclical, and this happened mm -hmm. back then, and it's happening now, and this is the newest version of that in terms of people being unable to agree to fight the real threat and not attack each other due to fear or due to hate of a people that are supposed to be a part of their nation and yet di different agreements along the way of being like, oh, yes, no, it's the Russians' fault that all this stuff is going on wrong. No, actually, no way. It's the black people's fault that all the things are going wrong. So it's... I'm sorry, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little bit disorganized in terms of all of this, but it's like... It's all right. This is, these are the last chapters. This is where, like, the most ideas come out. And, it's like, true, it's, yes. it's only right that we pursue these myriad roads because it's just... This is where the end of a new century book leaves us. Just mm. look at our 
previous discussions on the ends of things like tigers i, I guarantee you we were mm. like loopy then too but also in the case of arlington it's as much a story about us mm. america but also first world nations and the bullshit that we get hung up on and everything like that whereas at the very least tiger's eye you know the the cats are off doing their own things and there's some resonance with like the real world and everything like that but it's here as we keep mm. on saying we wish that arlington wasn't so relevant to mm. our modern era <laughs> theme of tiger's eye fuck imperialism Mm -hmm. Theme of Arlington. Oh, fuck. Imperialism has got us in a really bad state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <sighs> you definitely brought some good ideas in terms of, like, what Seth is going on, not from a thematic standpoint of, you know, our actions have led us to this, and this representation of, say, Mother Earth is saying, oh, yeah, you kept on fucking me up so long, so I'm going to send Wendigo as a end result as opposed to climate change to sort of mm. like put you back in your place and everything like that. Not that pestilence isn't the thing mm. that has resulted from the actions of humanity trying to change their environment and mm. therefore stuff resulting from that and everything like that. It's Yeah. Yeah, the comparison that came to mind during the notes, and I'm not going to go on this for a long time because there's not really a lot to be drawn from this, but it comes from the promise that was there for the early parts of Game of Thrones with the... God, I fucking forgot the names of them, but, like, the Ice Zombies, the, the uh, Night yeah, King yeah, yeah. and White the White Walkers. That's the White it. Walkers, yeah. Yeah. Sure. And the idea like that a lot of people had was that like the trajectory of the show is that, oh, we've got all of this political intrigue and machinations and everyone backstabbing each other and everything like that. And all the while there's this specter of this just like climate change slash like just the earth, like this like ancient force that like we're just doing nothing and ignoring it while we all just focus on stuff that does not matter mm. and it's going to just cut a swath across like the continent and just kill everyone and in that show they kind of bungled it because by the end of it it's like no they managed to defeat it now let's actually get to the real thing that matters political intrigue and it's like <laughs> okay well yeah. that sucks yeah. Um, whereas here, what we have is fulfilling the sort of idea of that, which is mm -hmm. that the earth has bit back and mm -hmm. it's got us into a place where it's like, okay, make or break time. Mm -hmm. And we're not stepping up manifestly in mm -hmm. Arlington, though I could be talking about real world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, Try, trying to avoid talking about that mm, because it's already mm, depressing enough as it is. We talk yeah. about it all the time on the Discord. Let's yeah. try and keep the focus on yes. fictional and events rather than here, current events. In the fiction of Arlington, there is this embodiment of this natural force that is saying, this is categorically your last chance. Mm. I have established like what your new world is adapt to it or die evolve or die is the summary of it we're now at a point in new century where 
the tension of stepping up is skyrocketing and the fact that by the end of this book that doesn't seem to be as much on the cards as we would like it to be is very concerning yeah but if this is how seth is trying to present himself as you know as you made the uh, uh allusion to earlier seth trying to pretend that he is thanos and therefore is inevitable so to speak mm-hmm. uh and all obviously all of this was written and came about long before infinity mm. war and endgame was on the table so you know like yeah. this, is, this isn't even and, an influence or anything like yeah, that Yeah, and like not even like because a lot of people have mentioned like not even like the comic book thanos could be an influence because like the movie version and comics are very motivated by very different things mm-hmm. and yeah exactly as different characters so we, yeah seth, this, seth isn't going around being in love with the embodiment of death or the no. embodiment of hunting or whatever else uh, that mm. could be, but mm. if we if we look at him instead as being just like any other person trying to maintain their power, and that yeah they've got he's got a good case for his seeming invulnerability and the effectiveness of the Wendigo at culling human population through transformation honestly, but also just through mm. eating, um, mm. be like ah yes now that I've shown you my power you will do as I say and leave us alone or leave us to our own devices. But mm. is his situation more fragile than it would seem? Well, we can't really say at this point, but yeah. he does seem to have a very good hand. So mm. this just could be a very, like the equivalent of bluffing with like, okay, he's got a good spread of hands clearly visible on the table, mm. but maybe his whole cards are shit and he's trying to act like they aren't shit. Well, this is the thing. Every single interaction we have with Seth in this book is him with someone that is essentially he's in opposition to. Mm -hmm. We have not seen any version of Seth when he's just talking with a confidant of some Mm -hmm. sort. We have no idea what his opinion is other than what he projects. Yeah, exactly. We don't get to see inside... Seth's mind at this point. So no. at this point, he gets he's... to see inside other people's minds because <laughs> yeah. of his insight and yeah, his yeah. ability to tell when you are lying. But like, that's not a two-way window. There, he is looking in. We can't look out. Yeah, in some ways, that almost makes him the ultimate antagonist here because he's not only driving the opposition, but mm. like, he almost isn't a character. Mm. Like he has feelings he has impulses he clearly has things that we can try to intuit from but because we don't see him in any other context except in opposition to annie or in opposition to thomas it's hard to get a handle on him as a person Mm. uh, because we only see him as one mode in one mode yeah exactly Mm. we don't get to see downtime with him Mm. yet we don't get to see him interacting with his family so to speak in such a context that we can actually get mm. insight into who he actually is yeah when he's, when he's not you know going into full yes i am the god of the wendigo mm. and uh and i am superior to you and i could mm. eat you if i wanted to i could kill you if i wanted to so just uh yes so i want you to kiss the ring and acknowledge my superiority before I mount my noble 
other Brayoth and go flying off to go uh, do whatever I want next. I, I don't know. Right. I'm suddenly presenting myself like Scar there of all. Either people. that or like James uh, Stephanie Sterling's like <laughs> Royston <laughs> Brayoth. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. I. Uh. I Weird. It's like I, we almost need to bring on the ridiculousness, the laughter, because it helps mm. us deal with the dark conversation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The before we get on to our last question with uh, Seth and everything, I'm going to just mention in response to something you mentioned about how it he's a perfect antagonist because we don't have a set, we don't have a re a bead on him yet. That kind of makes the accomplishments that Thomas manages here all the more impressive mm. because as much as this feels like Seth establishing the terms, this is nevertheless a real accomplishment of Thomas because he is enacting exactly what he said at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. Communication, son. <laughs> he communicates with Seth. Mm. Even though Seth is very much sort of like talking at Thomas to a certain degree because he's like, no, no, what you're saying is not the case. Try again. Yeah, and, no, and that, that, that's... that's kind it's of a damn a sight bit, better than most people. Mm. <laughs> but that's kind of a little bit in conflict with like, when I was coming back to this after all this time and looking mm. at how he was portrayed in those early chapters... And then coming back to the actual confrontation between Seth and Thomas, where he's actually expressing a concern for the Wendigo, which didn't necessarily seem to be as present in those early chapters, where you're like, you didn't kill your son. And mm. I view that as an actual act of sympathy that speaks to Seth's core. He wouldn't really have had to admit anything at that point. But he's clearly affected by the fact that Thomas didn't kill his son after the change. I think that might have been a deciding factor. Mm. Because this was the confirmation that this man has the capacity to view Wendigo as something that has a right to exist mm. rather than to be eradicated. That is kind of the theme of the handbook itself. Isn't it? Isn't it? That like the handbook, everything about it is basically like proposing you must not allow yourself any room for doubt. You, like mm -hmm. these creatures are not who they were. You have to kill them. And Seth is not necessarily trying to argue that like, no, these creatures are who they were. No, he's like not here to argue that point. He's here to argue, like not necessarily even argue it, but to establish you're wrong. You don't, you you don't get to place. kill us. Yes, you don't get to kill us. And the fact that at one moment he says, oh, you had a moment of what you would call hypocrisy, but I say is a moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. And he is, I think, at that point, interested to see if that seed can actually develop in any way. I think that when he makes these terms, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that Seth like, has faith that, or believes or is even 
particularly invested in Thomas being able to accomplish everything that Seth sets out. He's just like, it's more okay. of that curiosity. Yeah. Play your hand. Do the best you can. Let's see how long you'll be at the table, but I will stay at this table no matter what. Hmm. I'm sorry, the police uh, coming to collect you because you said something offensive? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. I say to the police, not to yeah. you. Um, no, 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 I got that. Fuck the police. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> and this is the part of the podcast where I once more feel like an idiot. Because I was nibbling around the edges of this idea the whole time, but with references to God and Lucifer, with some of the details of the confrontation itself, and even once more with Toby's joking reference to that quintessential anti-drug commercial. If we look at the story from Seth's perspective, is his confrontation with Thomas like a son confronting his father? I have no concrete basis for thinking this, I do have knowledge outside this book, which might be a hint in that direction, but since I can't talk about that, I have to work within the information given. One of the things I've been trying to figure out is why the fact that Thomas did not kill the Wendigo that his son became mattered to Seth, given everything else we knew. There just seemed to be a lot of conflicting information about Seth's motivations and what he cared about. But if we consider the possibility that Seth may not have come from a race that looked like him, then one wonders if he was a mutant of some kind that was cast out, perhaps even by his father, and that confronting Thomas gives him a chance to do something he was never able to do with his own father. That would explain this complicated interaction with Thomas, because it's likely a reflection of the turbulent nature of father and son to begin with. Obviously, I know that one of the biggest influences for Seth was Khan Singh, played by Benedict Cumberbatch in Star Trek Into Darkness. I now strongly feel that I need to watch this in order to get proper context, because I'm working with a lack of information here. But as I was thinking about Thomas and Seth and the way they went at each other, each trying to vie for control, I suddenly realized what this confrontation reminded me of. The End of Kung Fu Panda where Tai Lung confronted Shifu. What I ever did, I did to make you proud! Tell me how proud you are, Shifu! Tell me! Tell me! As it stands, I'm going to have to leave it there for now. But I'm willing to bet Toby and I may revisit it in our final episode. As a result of this epiphany, this definitely affected my choice of an ending song this time around. The music video itself shows two warring sides, and one could see some potential resonance in that, as well as the lyrics, between humans and Wendigo, Seth and Thomas. So until next time, this is Linkin Park with Points of Authority.
You've been thrown!